BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's The Argument. I'm Jane Coaston. Hi, Jane. Hi, Jane. <laughs> this rarely happens to me. I don't know if it happens to you because there aren't that many Janes. There are not. Yeah, But when true. it does happen, I'm like, oh, this is what everyone named Katie must experience all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Jane, Liz, first and foremost, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. We're excited. You are two of the leading labor voices in the country right now. So I want to hear from you about, number one, how the Amazon labor union challenges the status quo for how workers organize. And number two, if you still see Democrats as the party of and for unions. And I I know you're familiar with each other, but let me do quick introductions for our audience. Liz Schuler is the president of the AFL-CIO, a group of 57 labor unions that represent more than 12 million workers. Jane McAlevey is an organizer and campaign strategist who's trained thousands of workers on how to organize at their jobs. She's also the author, most recently, of A Collective Bargain, Unions Organizing and the Fight for Democracy. And Jane has a lot of critiques about how the big federations, like the AFL-CIO, are not being strategic about bringing new workers into the fold. So, to be clear here, I've been in a union. I like unions. I think unions are good. At their peak, more than a third of employed workers in America were in a union, but those numbers have been going down. But while only 10% of American workers belong to a union, I think I've heard the word union more times in the last month than I did while I was in one. The biggest news being Amazon warehouse workers unionizing in Staten Island, but we're also seeing Starbucks workers, delivery people in New York City, grocery workers in California. It's spring and the unions are busting out all over. And I want to be clear here that this is not a debate about whether or not unions are good or bad. But what I think you disagree on is how unions should capitalize on this newfound energy in this conversation. So I want to know, where do we go from here? How do we move forward? Because, Jane, you've written entire books critiquing some of the ways that the big unions, like those under the AFL-CIO, have gone about organizing. The Amazon warehouse workers, they unionized on their own, not with an established network of unions. And some people are saying, that's a new model, that's what you have to do. And I'm referring to the Amazon warehouse workers on Staten Island. So what do you think the big organizers are getting wrong here if it seems like we're in a moment where we can all move forward together? Sure. What we saw at Amazon Staten Island, what we saw in that victory is a very bottom-up campaign led by what I identify in all of my books as what we call the informal, not easily identifiable organic leaders. The committee that ran the Staten Island Amazon election was by definition something I called an organic leader. And that means you've got a base of workers on the inside who hold the respect of their coworkers from whom the victory, frankly, emerges. And in any good union, that's how victories emerge. 
So the life work of a good organizing is that our job is to teach the workers themselves what it's going to take for them to build bottom-up power that can sustain the blows of the vicious union busters in this country. And my critique of most national unions is they walked away from organizing. They just walked away from it. They've surrendered whole sectors of the economy. They were trying to cut deals with corporations that cut workers out to try and make things easier. But the root of the crisis, I'm going to argue, is that the national unions and the national AFL-CIO, for whom I worked for a number of years when I was young, are trying to mobilize for elections off a diminishing base. We simply lack the power. And it's like, People used to say it's the economy stupid. It's the base stupid, in my argument. It's we have to organize more workers. There is no more important imperative than actually expanding the universe from whom we then mobilize at election time. That's the root of the problem. And if we don't return to bottom-up organizing, we're simply not going to have the political muscle to force Democrats and Republicans to do that which they must to honor the essential workers coming out of this pandemic. Okay, so Jane is differentiating between organizing and mobilizing. Organizing, meaning finding and bringing in more people who are not already a part of your base. Whereas mobilizing is encouraging people who are already pro-union and on your side to do something. So Liz, you're the first woman to hold the office of president in the history of the AFL-CIO. You were elected in August of 2021. What do you think about what Jane said about, like, the need to find organic leaders, about the way that the AFL-CIO will be working with those unions going forward? You know, the Amazon labor union didn't spend that much money. Their outreach efforts were very different from, I think, other unionization efforts. And I'm curious as to what you took away from the Staten Island effort that could be successful in other places. Absolutely. And, and our job at the Federation, of course, is to be looking at the big picture and what can we learn and replicate and scale up because we know that we are up against corporate power that is just growing by the day. We want to embrace experimentation. We want to innovate and try new things. And you're right about the failures because I think for a long time, it's always been, oh, well, we had an organizing drive and it was successful. Look what we did over here. And then, oh, by the way, this one failed. We're not going to talk about that one. So we need to not be afraid to be open about what works and what doesn't and try new things without being afraid to fail. And so that's something that my hope is that we can learn from the Amazon labor union. A lot of their tactics were so old they're new, I guess I might say, and we've evolved over time since our beginning in the labor movement. That's, I think, what the origin of a labor movement is all about. Well, Jane, it sounds to me like if all of this was taking place, the unions would be being more successful than they are now. I mean, it seems like everybody likes unions right now. People are jazzed about them. So what's gone wrong? Frankly, unions are not putting the resources into organizing. And it's been going on for 20 years, at least. If you take the case of, for example, the Service Employees International Union, where I was once national deputy director for strategic campaigns, in some ways, one of the most important strategic sectors, right? There are what we call key strategic sectors right now. There were key strategic sectors in the 1930s. That was steel and coal and a whole series of growth industries. We have strategic sectors today. We have had national unions walk away from acute care, which is hospitals, private sector organizing, and it's never been taken seriously since. There are 5 million unorganized workers in the American hospital system alone. There's little bits of organizing going on, but nothing like the scale that we saw. And it's been a fundamental walk away 
from believing that workers themselves, with really good guidance, can actually win these kind of campaigns that we just saw on Staten Island. And despite the rhetoric today, and I don't mean rhetoric from Liz, I think Liz is new in her role and going to do her very best to try and rebuild this, this approach. But I think that there was a walk away by most, not all, but by most of the national unions. There was Why a do you lack think of that faith. happened? Like, this has been a debate for a couple of decades, at least. I entered it probably two and a half decades ago when I began as an organizer and was consistently winning campaigns at a time when I was being told you can't win that campaign over and over and over. This is unwinnable. Okay, then we'd win. Well, it's hard work. It takes a very serious approach. It does take real resources. And it takes a willingness by leaders to then be challenged by the results of organizing. I mean, that's one stream of the critique is that when a lot of organizing happens, you're bringing a ton of workers into the organization, they may actually challenge what their leadership is doing. And that's not comfortable for a lot of unions. I think at a cynical level, I have been in rooms, many, too many rooms, where I have listened to national leaders say things about workers that made me wanted to run screaming out of the room, meaning they lost faith in the capacity of ordinary people to do the kind of work that I've seen workers for 25 years do in campaigns up into and including in the Staten Island Amazon factory. So if there was a shift from a worker bottom-up focus to a staff-led, top-down corporate campaign, invest in researchers, invest in crashing share prices, invest in stockholder actions, invest in a bunch of stuff, which is, to me, as an organizer, all secondary. Where the money got shifted was to an army of staff who themselves kind of thought that they replaced the ordinary workers as the agents of change. And that is the fundamental flaw that spills into failing to then have the power to push the political parties to do that which the working class in this country needs. So it's a it's a constant cycle that is reinforcing and it's we gotta put a you know a finger in the dike or a something in the spoke or whatever it is. Like we just gotta we gotta get back to our base, which is real organizing. And then we have to do really great political education with them. So there's several things, but we can't do it off a diminishing base. You know, you would ask Jane about the mistakes of the traditional labor movement in the past. I think that we have to remember, too, our history, which everyone gets really bored and their eyes glaze over when I talk about history. But, you know, if you think about when unions were at their peak, and you talked about the numbers of people in unions, I think it was almost 30 percent of the workforce were in a union. I think at some point we got a little lazy, frankly. You know, the laws were on our side. We had an environment where people were joining unions and growing unions organically, and we were kind of riding a wave, so to speak. And so then people within the union focused more on bargaining and getting that better contract and less on educating their members keeping their members activated and informed and engaged. And so then as the laws changed, because we know that that has eroded over time, it's become more difficult to organize because corporations make it (laughs) almost impossible, as we've seen in Bessemer. That is this the pull and push of building an institution, the union, and the movement part of unions, where you have people who are actively shaping and changing their workplaces and their unions. Uh, so I there's that kind I, of push I wanna, and pull. I want to get to that point because I do think that obviously there's been the corporate response to unionization, but I think that that ties directly into the relationship 
big organizations like yours have with political parties. And I think we've seen that one of the challenges is that we have elected officials and candidates who run for office and talk about how they are very supportive of unions. Biden has said he wanted to be the most pro-labor president. But then you see, you know, Jay Carney go from the Obama administration to Amazon senior vice president for global corporate affairs. There's a tension here when you have companies that make all the right mouth noises, especially about kind of liberal bona fides, but then they actively work to bust unions. Well, yeah, it is a tension in that, you know, we just saw recently with GSG, a firm that we found out was actually helping Amazon with their anti-union activities. You know, they're associated with the Democratic Party. We said this is absolutely unacceptable. And we're basically drawing a line saying that companies need to be thinking about we need to consider essentially their corporate behavior when we're engaging them in politics, right? So that we all have to be aligned with the same set of values. You're either standing with workers and believe in their freedom to come together collectively, or you don't. So that's what we generally do when we approach politics, is we're looking at this through an issues lens based on the positions that they take on bettering wages, standing up for improving the minimum wage, standing up for retirement security, making sure that workers have the right to come together collectively and form a union. These are baseline issues that that is the lens through which we look, no matter if you're a Democrat, a Republican, Independent, Green Party, you name it. We look at the issues first. So it's not that we're aligned with the Democratic Party as a a vestige of the party itself. It's that Democrats generally support the issues that workers stand for more often. And that's what's beautiful about this movement we're in is that we have at the grassroots level the ability to have those debates and forge a path forward. Drexel University infuses academics with the power of real experience. Through Drexel's renowned cooperative education program, students are empowered to test drive future careers and discover the perfect profession before graduation. By embracing experiential education, this Philadelphia institution has created a practical yet transformative academic model that inspires intellectual exploration and yields undeniable results. More at drexel.edu. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. When I can finish a hard puzzle without hints, I feel like the smartest person in the world. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. Part of the attention that unions are getting right now is partly because white-collar workers are starting to join the movement or 
have been joining the movement. I know that when I was at Vox, we unionized and we unionized for very different reasons than folks who might be working in an Amazon warehouse might be unionizing than folks who, you know, like my grandfather was trying to unionize in West Virginia in the 40s. If workers are experiencing very differing forms of exploitation, is there a way to unite those movements? Is there a way to move forward together or are they just too different? No. I mean, I think the process of collective bargaining, uh, which I have to say, probably my most favorite thing on planet Earth is leading negotiations. And it's often first contract negotiations because the workers have generally just formed a union. And I mean, I, for probably a decade, was very focused on acute care organizing, meaning hospital organizing. And the approach that we took, I think, was the correct one, which was we did everything from registered nurses to housekeepers to dietary to everyone. We believed in a whole approach to the hospital and that essentially to heal the patient requires the whole hospital. So the argument against that, you know, by the union busters, by everyone always trying to split the nurses from the rest of the workers, was that the sets of issues were very different. And the truth is what workers need to win a good collective agreement is power. More workers, more power. It's a pretty simple equation when you actually get to how do you win your contract. It's not about being nice at the bargaining table. It's about building sufficient power to get strike ready, to have what we call a credible strike threat, to be able to actually cause a crisis for the employer. I mean, when I'm doing collective bargaining, I have an approach that says every single worker is invited in the room. I walk in with hundreds of them. The first thing the employer tries to say is, well, we've got very different issues here. And they try and drag the whole thing out, you know, sort of endlessly. And I'll say, look, we've got one of every kind of nurse in the room. We've got someone from dietary, housekeeping, name the unit. We've got people from every shift. We can break into separate rooms. We can do separate tables. We can not have everyone bored by discussing everyone's little small issues, and we can get it all done in a day. So I'm never intimidated by having a very diverse set of workers at the bargaining table in negotiations because I say to the workers, we're going to have so many of you in the room that we're going to call their bluff and break into separate tables if we need to. Like, we know how to get this done quickly. Workers are smart, right? They actually get the work done. Especially because in the majority of workplaces, no matter where you work, if the workers leave, you can't do the thing anymore. Exactly. Just to give a quick explainer, very, very brief, because if you're coming into this brand new to collective bargaining, essentially collective bargaining is the negotiations between an employer and a group of employees aimed at coming up with a contract or an agreement about salaries, working conditions, benefits, and other aspects of compensation and rights for workers. So my favorite example always is the NFL. The NFL has a Players Association. It's a very weak union, and I want it to be stronger. If you're listening, NFL Players Association, call me. But they, every year, they have a negotiation process where they talk about things like making sure that the fund for former NFL players who might be dealing with the health issues that come from playing football are dealt with. And every year, the NFL is so proud of its process. But that's what bargaining looks like. It's a back and forth, just in case anyone did not know what that meant. But going back to Liz, so you said earlier that, you know, it doesn't really matter who you're negotiating with. It doesn't matter what political party you're negotiating with. But I think for a lot of people who are observing this debate, it seems to be that everyone wants to talk about how they're pro-worker, but... No one seems to agree on what that means. When we're talking about whether it's Democrat or Republicans, people want to claim that they are putting forward a pro-worker policy or something like that. When you are talking to politicians and they say they are pro-worker, what do you want them to mean by that? 
Well, I think there's some great examples coming out right now from the Biden administration. We've got a United States trade representative, Catherine Tai, who thankfully is coming from, you know, a depth of experience and really taking seriously this commitment to having a worker-centered trade approach. We know that in the past, this administration (laughs) right before this one was not a friend to workers, but the Biden administration has made it a priority to look through the lens of working people. And no matter if it's a cabinet official, the regulatory process, the president himself using his bully pulpit to talk about you know, what that means. I think we are seeing that in real time. And it has been made clear that workers' rights should be embedded in that framework, not as a side agreement, not as lip service, but that it will be a baseline. There are many, many examples. They just did a worker empowerment task force where they took all the federal agencies, got them around a table, and said, what can we do using the levers of the federal government to encourage more workers to organize unions? Can I interrupt you for a second? Yes. Now, I I love a task force, but historically, any organization that says they're going to put forward a task force, that tends to be kind of a like... We'll put together some recommendations, but I, I want to know from the president. What do you committed think? to them? They to, to, already to, committed to, to, committed to, to implement to those recommendations. Yes. And can you talk just briefly about because the president's also supported Kellogg's collective bargaining agreement in 2021. He supported the Employee Free Choice Act, but when it comes down to like a worker or a group of workers who are at a chicken plant in Iowa where COVID has run rampant. What does this mean to them? What do these recommendations mean to them and their ability to actually organize and do things so that they can get paid and go home if they're sick? Well, I mean, the government obviously has some impact on this, of course, but really it's the employers that have the most impact. And I think government elected officials holding their feet to the fire is what we're talking about here through policy, through regulation, And looking through workers' lenses, the impact on real working people versus what a corporation can get away with. And the scales have been tilted far out of balance for way too long. And that's what this administration and this Congress are trying to get their arms around, pass bills that actually will impact the lives of working people. And we saw that with the American Rescue Plan. We saw that with the bipartisan infrastructure bill that just passed that is going to create millions of good-paying jobs and put people to work with good career paths. But it's only one part of the equation. We have the government, of course. We have corporations and their responsibility as employers, but then we also have the workers and, and labor. And I think that's where we started this conversation is, you know, workers coming together to create leverage, to have more power, to influence and make the change that we'd like to see. And that's where we are at this moment in the economy, especially coming out of the pandemic. Workers are saying enough's enough of this broken system. Jane, do you think that plan is going to work? Sadly, no. It hasn't worked since the 1960s. I mean, this is the basic problem and and returning to why we need to do massive base expansion, a.k.a. real organizing. I mean, there's several things going on here. I think there has been a, a failure on the part of the labor movement nationally, largely, to hold the Democratic Party accountable. If you look at starting with Clinton, you know, in the Democratic Leadership Committee and Clinton walking in and passing NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, which frankly, did open up 
the dislocation of a lot of really good jobs in this country. And, and workers know that. So we had NAFTA under Clinton. We had a sort of belief under the Obama administration that like demography is destiny. That's just couldn't be further from the truth in terms of looking at where people are voting. And then we have we have this tendency to forego real political education. And let me just start with what Biden didn't do, which he could have easily done, which would have been very significant, which was show up on the 10,000 worker strike line of the John Deere picket line. We had a strike playing out among white working class men, mostly, not only, uh, but the base that Trump is contending for in key swing states. And the president never showed up on that picket line. And I got to tell you, from a perspective of like, how does the base, how do ordinary people come to distinguish the difference in these two political parties, showing up on some of the most important picket lines and doing what you can to help those workers win, not the behind the scenes stuff. There's way too much behind the scenes stuff going on in this country right now. And that's, it's not working because it denies the fundamental political education that workers need to understand how and for whom to pull the lever when they walk into the voting booth. So I'm excited about all the things that Liz mentioned. I just don't have a lot of faith because the National Democratic Party walked away from the working class. They made an alliance with big business and they have let their own most powerful base, which has historically been the black church and organized labor, wither. And we are paying the price for it. So behind the scenes stuff is not working. It denies core political education for rank and file workers. And we need to hold them more accountable. Unions need to primary, enter the Democratic primary fight and primary bad Democrats, which I say as a target rich environment in this country. There's way too many of them who are way too close to corporations. And that speaks to sort of a risk aversion that has been going on for 25 or 30 years, most of my adult life, um, in the trade union movement. And we've got to change that. We've just, we've got to hold people accountable to what it is they do, not what they promise at election time. And if I could add to that, I think we are responsible for that. We need to be out educating people. And that's one thing that we are gearing up for this election is to get back to the grassroots level in the workplaces, face-to-face conversations to talk about the issues and really listen to workers and hyper-localize the approaches because some top-down pollster and research coming down from a national level is not going to work to open people's ears and really start talking about what matters. It's got to come from the grassroots level. And so the labor movement is is uniquely positioned with the infrastructure that we have with local unions and, and our federation, actually, in every state in the country with access to working people and workplaces across industries to be the place where we can bring people back together. But I'm curious, I mean, you lead 12 million workers through your work. So what do you think is stopping what Jane is suggesting? Well, in terms of holding politicians accountable, that is what we do. And at the local level, across different sectors and workers from all different industries and backgrounds and geographies come together and have those debates. They look at candidates' records. And if you don't vote on the issues that workers care about in the right way, 
That is when you start looking at primaries. That is when you start running labor movement candidates, actually, working people who have decided to take on running for office themselves. Because, you know, if their elected officials aren't reflective of the priorities and the issues that workers care about, then sometimes you got to run yourself. And so we've been investing in labor candidates all across the country as well. So it's not, again, about Democrats, Republicans per se. It's about the issues and absolutely holding people accountable based on those set of issues. Liz, I want to ask you, is the best case scenario that all workers are unionized? In other words, in a best case scenario, all workers have all the protections and your job is kind of obsolete? Wow, I would say yes. We want all workers to have a voice and we think they should. This is about being able to control your own destiny, to be able to shape the workplace that you would like to see, to be able to come together and leverage and have more power. And in fact, this is a watershed moment. The system, as we know, isn't working for people. And it's been broken for a long time, well before the pandemic, but the pandemic shone a light on just how many things are broken and the fact that People did make sacrifices to get us through and and worked on the front lines and uh, put their health at risk. And now they're fed up and they're fired up. Jane, what do you think? What's your ultimate goal? That all workers are unionized? Oh, heck yeah. I mean, that's there's no there's no question that the world would be a better place, not just this country. Right. We've got authoritarianism on the rise all over the world. I work with unions all over the world right now. And the the through line between grotesque levels of inequality and arrogance and the resulting conclusion of strong men, strong state authoritarianism is not just a threat in the United States. It's a threat everywhere right now. I mean, the French elections are crazy right now. We've got, you know, Marie Le Pen, a hard right candidate coming way too close in the elections. We just saw Orban reelected in Hungary. We've got to take it on or we're heading in a very bad trend line. Well, Liz, Jane, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was an honor to be with you, Jane, as well. Both Janes. Liz Schuler is president of the AFL-CIO, a group of 57 labor unions that represent over 12 million workers. Jane McAlevey is an organizer and campaign strategist. Her most recent book is A Collective Bargain, Unions Organizing in the Fight for Democracy. And check out the piece... The People United Must Fight Hard or Be Defeated by my colleague Binya Applebaum about what unions face moving forward, published in the New York Times. You can find links to all of these in our episode notes. We've also opened comments on this episode on our website. And now that you've made it through, I can actually encourage you to leave your own thoughts or debate with someone you disagree with. Be nice. I'll be watching. The Argument is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Phoebe Lett, Elise Gutierrez, and Bashaka Durba. Edited by Alison Burjek and Annabelle Bacon. With original music and sound design by Isaac Jones and Pat McCusker. Mixing by Pat McCusker. Fact-checking by Kate Sinclair, Michelle Harris, and Mary Marge Locker. Audience strategy by Shannon Busta, with editorial support from Christina Samuluski. Our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Ready to set off on your captivating journey into the botanical world? NYBG's brand new online education program, Plant Studio, offers bite-sized courses tailor-made for you to pursue your passion as a budding plant person. Guided by professionals, dig into gardening, 
botany, floral design, landscape design, and more. Grow your skills with online learning your way. Register at nybg.org.